Good morning, everyone. How's everyone this morning? So I, I, I'm a little bit inspired by uh, Cam. Uh, he did a magic trick one time from the front for his little talk, so I thought, you know, I'll do the same thing. Can I get a volunteer? A volunteer. I'm not going to embarrass it. What, who's it? it? Whoever? Okay. Whoever, first come, first serve. Eric, this looks bad because I know you. So you could be a plant. All right, I want you to hold my Bible. All right. I want you to think, well, what we're going to be doing is mind reading today, okay? Reading his mind. I want you to, or lack, or lack of mind, yes. I want you to think of a number between 1 and 750. Okay? I want you to think of any country in the world. Think of any color, okay. and the middle name of one person you love. Okay. okay? Now before, I know what you're thinking, right? There's no way he can possibly know this, right? Yeah. All right, there you go. Thanks. <laughs> Those of you who are a little bit slow, I read his mind, Okay. And that may or may not have anything to do with the sermon today. We'll see how that goes. <clears throat> so uh, a couple of weeks ago, my son, Creighton, who was three years old, uh, comes running into the room, and my wife and I are there, and he says, Dada! Dada! Karis hit me! He's got kind of a New York accent going sometimes. Like He says things like, no, and sure, and stuff like that. My, my oldest daughter, Santa, likes to correct him. It's not no, it's no. It's not dada, it's dada. So he comes in, Karis hit me, Karis hit me. So, of course, we, you know, Karis, come here. What happened? Why did you hit your little brother? You know, she looks a little bit sheepish. Why would you do that, Karis? Why did you hit him? Because he hit me first. Well, that's, that's not a good reason to hit your little brother. You know, if I've told you this, I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, when your sibling does something to you, you don't retaliate, you come and tell me first and I will deal with it, right? Vengeance is mine, saith the father. So, if this happens, you come to me. And she says, but I did it because the Bible says, do to others what they do to you. And I said, no. No, the Bible doesn't say that, Karis. Yes, it does, Dada. Yes, it does. I learned it in Sunday school. So, of course, my wife, Farfar, and I look at each other, sit down and do the only thing you can do in this kind of a situation and say, Karis, that is false teaching. Who is your Sunday school teacher? And while we're here with the elders, I would like to know, who teaches the five-year-olds? Because this is not from the Word. And I don't appreciate my, my daughter learning this. Right? So this is kind of a, a childish, retaliatory version of the golden rule. Do to others as they do to you. And you've all heard of the golden rule, right? There's, there's different versions of it um, in every culture, in every religion, in every background, we have all, all different kinds of versions of it. And obviously, this is a misquote, right? 
hopefully her teacher didn't teach her this. If, if so, then Rick and I will have a talk afterwards. We can figure that out. But um, she clearly misquoted, misheard, misunderstood something. And so it's the childish retaliator version. But there are many, many more versions out there. Um, there's the negatively worded versions that you've probably heard. Um, we have, in China, you have Confucian version. You have the, the Buddhist version. Um, there's, there's the Christian version, the Muslim version. Uh, Gandhi has said this. A lot of gurus and different religious leaders and teachers have said this. The negative version usually goes something like this. Do not do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Right? So it's, it's worded in a negative way. And you have to stop and think about, what do I not want done to me? And then I should not do that to other people. Or do not treat people in a way that I do not want to be treated. And so... It's a good general rule for life, right? Trying to avoid pain by treating other people in ways, not treating other people in ways that I don't want to be treated. And so we can think about this as sort of the, uh, the fearful optimist. I'm fearful of being treated in certain ways. I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to be um, abused. I don't want to be uh, not pleased in my life. And I have this optimism that if I treat other people or don't treat other people in those negative ways, that hopefully they will also not treat me in those ways. Some are worded in the positive sense. Rather than do not do to others as you don't want them to do to you, we say do to others as you want them to do to you or treat others the way you want to be treated. We could refer to this kind of uh, golden rule as the hopeful optimist. If I treat other people the way I would like to be treated, then hopefully they will in turn treat me in the same way. And that works if we assume that people are generally good and generally following the same rules as us, right? We want reciprocation. But both of these wordings, the, the fearful optimist and the hopeful optimist version of the golden rule, uh, have a couple of problems with them. Um, the first one is that if we believe that we ought to act in this way, regardless of the reciprocation, so whether or not people will in turn act the same way toward us, if we believe that, where does the power to do that come from if people continually don't act that way towards us? Can I continue on and on in relationship with my family, friends, enemies, continuing to treat them well despite the fact that they're maybe not treating me well? Where does the power come from? And if it's not about that, if it's about the reciprocation, then it's simply a self-centered rule, right? I'm thinking about, well, how do I want to be treated? What would I like people to treat me like? Or what would I not like people to treat me like? And then I'm just acting in that way for my own benefit, not necessarily for the benefit of others, okay? So the first problem being, if it is for the benefit of others, I would do it regardless of their response. But if it's not for the benefit of others, then it's for my benefit, and so therefore it's self-centered. In today's Bible passage reading that we just heard, Jesus kind of weighs in with his own version of this golden rule. Or does he? You see, it's very easy for us in this sort of pluralistic, postmodern world to miss the mark and to mistake Jesus for another good teacher or a religious guru, much like Gandhi or Buddha 
um, or other, other religious teachers. But is Jesus really like that? Is this really what Jesus is saying? Look at the wording here. Very simplified. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay? The other versions of the rule typically don't include the word love. Okay? Jesus is saying right here, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the passage that we looked at in the PowerPoint. I don't, I don't have my own PowerPoint, so don't be confused. But we're talking about the same passage here. In another passage, similar, love your neighbor as yourself, the teacher of the law questions, well, who is my neighbor, right? Who is my neighbor? I love the Chinese version of this, this law here because it's so simple. ji, right? Love people the way that self, right? Love people the way you love yourself. If, if Jesus spoke Chinese, nobody would have questioned who's my neighbor. They would just say, who's people? And obviously everyone, right? So, ruji, love your neighbor as yourself. And in this passage, Jesus is referencing a passage in Leviticus, okay? So, he, he's asked, what's the most important commandment? And he gives two, right? He over-answers. The first and most important commandment is to love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Which is from Deuteronomy. And then he references this one from Leviticus. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you go back to Leviticus, um, I can't remember, I think it's chapter 19, verse 18. Um, and you can read about the, the different laws that are related to that. But here he is referencing this. And in the New Testament, okay, the Old Testament is written in, in Hebrew. Um, and the New Testament is written in Greek. Jesus didn't speak Greek. But the word that they chose to translate, love, here, is the same root word as agape, which... I don't speak Greek, so that's not the right pronunciation, but you, you're familiar with the word agape, right? Everyone knows what agape is. Typically, agape in the New Testament is a word that refers to the love that is from God or the love that is uh, of God, okay? So God is love. He is agape. And it's a selfless, um, pure, it's not like the other types of love um, in the Bible, like storge or, or phileo. Um, brotherly love or, or eros, which is uh, the love between a man and a woman, typically more uh, physically oriented. This is a, a very pure, perfect kind of love. And so here Jesus says, agape your neighbor or agape the people around you as yourself. I spent some time looking at the Greek here, and this actual, this iteration of the word agape almost translates as you shall be loving. You shall be loving your neighbor or associates, is one way of translating it, as yourself. It's so easy, I think, for us in our self-help and self-improvement society to focus on the wrong part of the verse. And I've heard many times, I've been guilty of it myself in the past, that we pause sometimes and we say, well, see, I need to learn how to love myself first before I love my neighbor. And we're focused on, how do I love myself better? But you tell me, does that sound like any of Jesus' other teachings? Does Jesus ever talk about love for yourself or self-centeredness in a positive, you ought to do this better type of way? Not really, right? Jesus knows our heart. So the, the, my little mind-reading trick had nothing to do with the sermon, but here's Jesus talking to this audience, and he knew their minds, right? Jesus, knowing the minds of men, is talking about this kind of love, agape, 
Love your neighbor as yourself. And so don't be distracted by this um, rabbit trail of trying to say, I need to learn how to love myself first, or I need to love myself better so I can love my neighbor better, because he has a solution for this, and it's not in a self-help book, and it's not in uh, learning how to be self-focused or loving yourself more so that you can love your neighbor better. Not so much in a direct sense. There's a related, related part to that, and we'll get to it, but it's not, it's not so direct like that. So is it really a valid point, Ben, to say I need to love myself before I love others? I think not. Um, love, by definition, is other-centered. Okay? We use that as, as um, a definition of love. Love is other-centered. If you don't believe me, you can look at the famous love passage about this type of love, agape, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And when you look at that, you can see, you know, love is patient, love is kind. You're familiar with that passage. We read it at weddings, typically, and that we ought to have an agape love in our marriage, not just the eros love. And if you read through those words, you can stretch the words a little bit. You know, I, I need to be patient with myself. I need to be more kind with myself. But you're kind of stuck when you get to the descriptions of things like, um, how do we explain envy? Love does not envy. Yeah, I need to learn how to not envy myself. I need to learn how to not want what I have myself. Or how do you explain the love does not seek its own, right? So if I'm trying to learn how to love myself better, I'm not just seeking my own desires. I'm seeking the desires of myself. It doesn't make sense, right? So genuine agape is really an others-focused love. And you can see that even in the way that uh, God loves us. If God is agape, if God is love, and has been love since eternity past, it means that there was always an object of his love. And even in the idea, the Christian idea of the Trinity, where the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in perfect unity, there is a love that is others-centered, focused on the others. There's that love between them, okay? So love is other-centered. You can even look at uh, 1 John chapter 4. It's a great passage also about love. Uh, Farfar and I use uh, 1 John 4.19 as the theme for our wedding. We love because he first loved us. Um, and just prior to that, it talks about love and says, There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out all fear. So God's perfect love for us casts out fear. And his love through us casts out fear. What is fear? What's the opposite of fear? Rick often talks about this. What's the opposite of fear? Don't answer because you'll be wrong. Okay, so I'm just kidding. You won't be wrong. But one of the things you can think about as an opposite of fear is stupidity. Because we ought to be afraid, right? There are things that we should fear. We, we, should, we should fear falling off of tall buildings. That's why people have a fear of heights, right? We should fear poisonous snakes. There are certain things that we ought to be afraid of, not in the sense of fear because we are not trusting in God, but we probably should avoid those things. So fear, in essence, is self-preservation or self-protection. God has instilled fear of certain things into us, and that's that we want to preserve ourselves. We want to avoid pain. We want to uh, pursue pleasure, right? Fear, in a sense, is self-focused. It's self-preservation. And love, being 
others-focused, it perfectly makes sense that perfect love casts out all fear. In other words, others-focusedness casts out self-focusedness, right? And so even in Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross, we know that, you can debate this later, and if I'm wrong, just like Craig said last week, you probably come and talk to me about the way I say this, but Jesus himself was, had, had fear or was, was agonizing before the crucifixion. He didn't want to go there. He, he, he didn't want to be crucified on the cross, but his perfect love for God, the Father, and his perfect love for us as his people cast out that fear to the point where he said, nonetheless, not my will, but yours, right? So even in our own experience, we often have a fear of certain things, preserving ourselves on fear of rejection, fear of um, many different things, but perfect love casts out fear. And so my point here is that love, genuine love, agape love, is others-centered, and it cannot be, by definition, self-centered. Okay, now don't confuse me here. There are still some Let's just say whether it's semantics or linguistic problems. We need to have a, a genuine self-respect, okay? We need to have a genuine, uh, healthy self-image as we are made in the image of God. And so you may have a low self-esteem, and you may not be treating yourself very well. And in that case, you might use the words, I need to love myself better or improve my love on myself first. But I would argue that that's also not really what we're talking about here. Because your self-image might be proud, thinking of yourself more highly than you ought, right? But some people think of themselves more lowly than they ought, which in turn is still pride. Because pride is any deviation from what God thinks of you. And if God says that you are worthy because of Christ's blood, and if God says that you are loved by him, and you are made in his image, then whether you think you're better than certain things or whether you think you're worse than certain things, you have put yourself in a position that says, my word is more important than what God says, right? So even in this sense, it's not really love that we're talking about. It's a correct perspective. I need to have a correct perspective. If I'm thinking too lowly of myself, a correct perspective is to see myself through God's eyes. How do we do that? We see ourselves through his word. The second uh, potential here is, you know, I want to improve myself. You know, I, for example, I need to love myself better by getting into better shape or eating more or doing more things that I like. Well, I would argue, at least for myself, and maybe you'll find this is the same way for you, if I'm not exercising, it's not because I'm not loving myself or not doing the things I want to do. I am doing the things I want to do. I am being lazy, <laughs> right? And then maybe loving myself more or improving myself more is just something that I know is more wise to do. I should be better better shape. I should do more exercise. I should eat more healthily. But ultimately, I'm not avoiding those things because of some self-loathing, right? I actually love the idea of sitting on the couch and watching movies or, or just being lazy. So whatever we do, we are, in a sense, sort of loving ourselves. But it's not necessarily just a sinful kind of love. You remember, Jesus is talking here to this audience, these Sadducees and Pharisees, and the people that are you know, obviously they're surrounding them. Not the whole crowd is just Pharisees. And Jesus, knowing the minds of men, because he is omniscient, he knows their minds, but also because he made them, right? And because he is a man, Jesus being 100% man in the incarnation on earth. So he knows what we go through. He knows what we struggle through. 
Right? The Bible says that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, but one who knows everything we go through. So he understands experientially as a man, he understands omnisciently as God, and he understands um, holistically as our creator. He knows that he has put in us a desire that we want to avoid pain, pursue pleasure, pursue fulfillment. And that is not wrong. It's not sin. So don't mistake me for saying that as sin. It becomes sin when we pursue that fulfillment outside of his plan or outside of his provision. It also becomes sin when we begin to focus on ourselves more than other people and don't recognize that they are also in the image of God. Okay? And so he's referring to this right here. Master, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The law and the prophets hang or depend on these two. He didn't need to say the second one, but he did because it's related. And these are the two major sins that we all struggle with. The first one is finding our fulfillment outside of God. The second one is not viewing other people as made in God's image and not loving them. And he has demonstrated that love to us. So going back to Jesus' words in Matthew, remember, it's, uh, it's easy to be derailed and think, I need to focus on myself. But according to the First Corinthians definition of love, love is not self-focused, it's others-focused. But he designed us that we ought to pursue fulfillment, and we ought to pursue it in him. If we are to love others as we love ourselves, or in the way that we love ourselves, or in the style that we love ourselves, or with the passion that we love ourselves, then that means we are pursuing those things on behalf of other people. So, love, in a sense, is becoming others centered, others focused. And to love others as yourself is to pursue their fulfillment in the same way that you pursue your own. So, how do we do that? When Jesus was asked what the most important commandment is, he answered, he went further to tell us this, and we realized that these two commands, love your God and love your neighbor, are interconnected. They are dependent on each other. They are the display of each other. The first is manifested and proved in the following of the second. Again, in 1 John chapter 4, the author, John, says, how can you say you love God who you do not see when you do not love your brother or when you hate your brother who you can see, right? So we can't even say I'm following this first commandment to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength if I'm not loving my neighbor. Our uh, wedding verse, 1 John four nineteen: we love because he first loved us. Is a powerful statement. And it's something that I've, I think I've grown to learn uh, through the word and through my personal experience and, and talking with other people. We are incapable of having a love that surpasses the love that we have experienced. So, you know, one of the things that we do with our, with our children, right, 
we model the way our parents parented us. Even if we don't want to. Eventually you find yourself, oh, I'm just like my father or just like my mother. Or that's exactly the way they would do it. And you've experienced your parents' love toward you and you have a difficulty surpassing that love. So the love that you flow out or the love that you give cannot surpass the love you have experienced or received. And that is true even in a biblical context with Christians because we can have the ability to love other people unconditionally because we have received unconditional love. But you need to experience that unconditional love to be able to understand it and to be able to also give it to other people. If you're not connected to God's unconditional love, then you're going to have a really hard time loving other people unconditionally. So the love that you give out will not surpass the love you have experienced, and therefore you need, I need, we all need to experience God's love in a deep way. And that will affect the love that we're able to give out to our neighbor, or in Chinese, people, right? Don't ask the question, who's my neighbor? Don't try to cheat and just do the bare minimum. How are you going to love people? Your, your family, your friends, your coworkers, brothers and sisters at the church. How do we do that? And so I would suggest step one is to experience his love in his word. If you're unfamiliar with the word of God, read it more. Because that's where he demonstrates his love uh, verbally to us. The word is God. It is the history of all the things that he's done to prove his love for us. And it talks about, um, our, it teaches us to understand God and his love toward us. So step one is just to be washed in the word or to be in the word daily. And I confess, I don't do a good job of this. I don't think a lot of us probably don't. And the less time I spend in the word, the less I am experiencing his love. And the more time I spend in the word, the more I'm experiencing his love. And so it's imperative that I spend time in the word so that I can experience his love. That's step one. Step two talks about the first commandment is then to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why is that step two? Because 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. We're able to experience his love first, which helps us learn how to love him, to find our fulfillment in him, loving with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, all of our comprehension, all of our desires, all of our abilities are meant to love him. If we do that, then we are being filled and we are able to step three. As you're filled with his love, let it reflect into the lives of other people and overflow from that deep connection that you have with him. So as you're spending more time in the word, this sounds like a Sunday school lesson, right? More time in the word, more time in prayer, treat others the way they treated you. I'm just kidding, that was the wrong one. Spend more time in the word, spend more time in prayer, spend more time in fellowship with other people because God does love you through other people and we experience his love in connection with fellow believers. This is very clear. A new command I have for you, love one another as I have loved you. This is in Jesus' words in John. By this, all men will know that you are my followers. Okay? It is the love that we have for each other manifested in our actions, manifested in our pursuit of the fulfillment, fulfillment um, of other people that when people come and look and they see, wow, what's going on in this church? What's going on in this fellowship, this Bible study? 
that will let people know that we're followers of him. So step one, experience his love more through fellowship, through the word, through prayer. Step two is love him. If you love him, keep his commandments. What's his greatest commandment? To love him. It's a bit circular, right? The funny thing you'll find is that most of the commandments that Jesus gives to us in the New Testament are circular. Right? And if you're trying to do this in your own flesh, you're not going to be able to figure it out. If you love me, keep my commandments. What's my first commandment? To love me. Where do I, how does that work? Right? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. Circular. Unless you realize that you need God to make it happen. You need to experience his love. You need to experience his grace. You need to be full of the Holy Spirit and not living self-centered, but living other-centered. First, God-centered, so that you can be other-centered. If you try to take Jesus out of the equation in any part of your Christian walk, you will fail. This is why I fail daily. This is what sin is, right? Taking God out of the equation and trying to do things on my own. So we have to be reminded daily that to love, to obey, to have faith, to do all these things is a requirement. We don't have this within us. It is the gift of God, right? Faith is the gift of God, and we love because he first loved us. So if you've heard me speak before, you know that there's always something about the gospel in here, or the core of the gospel. So where do we find that here? Here it is. Um, I've talked about soul cravings. Everyone has cravings in their soul. It's how we were made. God made us that we would crave intimacy because we want to be loved and known and accepted. He made us that we would crave meaning because we want to know that what I'm doing now is important and it's not just living life daily through the grind. And he would, made us that we would crave destiny, that it's not just what I'm doing now, but in the future I have a future and what I'm doing here on the earth is not done when I die, that there is something more. Right? The world twists these things and they try to give us things like sex, power, and legacy. Legacy is looking backwards. Destiny is looking forward. Right? We crave these things and the only way to fulfill our, our craving or our longings for genuine intimacy, genuine meaning, and genuine destiny is Jesus Christ. There is no other way. And everything that we try to put into our heart Everything the world offers us, the bait and switch that happens, will not fulfill. Our heart is the biggest thing in the world. No matter how much we put into it, it just never gets full. It's infinitely large. We keep putting things in. I don't know if there's a hole in the bottom or what it is, but I put things into my heart, more relationships, more play, more uh, pursuing whatever I want to pursue, and you never feel fulfilled in your sense of intimacy, meaning, and destiny, unless... You put something infinitely perfect, infinitely large to fill that infinite-sized heart, and that is Christ. And so if I am made to pursue all of these things, and if Jesus is the ultimate answer, then here's where it comes in. Love your neighbor as yourself. The best way you can do that is to offer Jesus to your neighbor. Everything else we offer is ultimately not fulfilling. The Christian author and pastor John Piper likes to use this theme in most of his books called Christian Hedonism. 
hedonist is someone who avoids pain and pursues pleasure. And that everyone is kind of like that. We're all made to be hedonists in some way. And it's actually not sinful unless we do that by pursuing things outside of God. And a Christian hedonist is somebody who is pursuing the fulfillment of all of that from God because we know that that's the best place to get satisfied. That we will be fulfilled completely in our relationship with Christ. And so in the same way, if I want to genuinely love my neighbor as myself and I have experienced the fulfillment that comes from a relationship with Jesus Christ, then the best thing I can offer my neighbor is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so a practical application. Easter is coming. A lot of people go to church on Easter, even if they don't go to church other times. Share God with your neighbor. Take one of those cards. I don't know where John put them. Go out and share God with your neighbor. I don't mean go and be a soapbox preacher or a televangelist or something like that. Because if you're really treating other people as you want to be treated, if you're really loving them as you love yourself, you realize that you don't want people preaching at you. I don't even know why I'm up here preaching at you. You don't want people preaching at you. You want them to understand you, to receive you, to, to accept you, to love you, and then to, as they've listened to you, offer something that, that fits. That's what we want, right? We all know that the ultimate solution for everyone's needs is a relationship with Jesus Christ. We all know that, but people don't want to hear it that way. You just need the Lord, right? What they want to hear is, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? Hey, I, I have something that I think might help you, right? Or I'd like to share something with you. And so, one of the best things you can offer to help you obey this commandment and to help you love your neighbor is I challenge you, and I challenge myself, to invite someone that's not coming to Capital Community Church come next week, come the following week, and let them see that we are followers of Christ because of our love for one another. Let them experience what it is like to be loved with the love that comes from God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that uh, you see fit to make the whole law and the prophets hang on something that is most important for our souls. That we find our fulfillment in you and we share that with other people. I thank you that you're not choosing laws that, are, that seem random as important to you, but ones that are really about your character and our purpose. And Father, I pray that you would bless Capital Community Church. Lord, I pray that... Um, as a congregation, we would learn how to put you first, how to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and how to love others as ourselves. And Lord, I pray that anyone who comes into this, into this building, into this congregation, into this fellowship, would know that we are followers of you because of our love for each other. I pray that uh, that love would come from an overflow as we experience your perfect love and it drives out all fear that we would be motivated and prepared and supplied with that love to give to our wives and husbands, our children, our coworkers, our friends, our neighbors. Thank you that your word is for us today. In Jesus' name.